Okay guys, this is the study guide for test one. You will need your Bible. I recommend having your notes so you can check along to see what you have as well as what you don't have. Because I will be introducing some new material. I strongly recommend taking notes as we go. The nice thing about a podcast is you can stop it, rewind, um, as needed. And so let's get started. I'm only going to be going over the items that I think you'll be needing the most help with. Some of them are already found in your textbook, either in your U-book or in your vocations book. In fact, recently you did a homework assignment where you did uh, the homework assignment on the priesthood covered a lot of these questions already. So this will be for clarity and a little bit for review. So here we go. Question number one. Be prepared to discuss the universal call to holiness. All that you need to know about item one of the study guide is that holiness is something that everyone is called towards. I may not know whether or not you guys are called by God to be married, to be priests, deacons, or brothers, but I do know one thing for sure. God is calling every one of you to be holy. It's a universal call. Question number two. What does it mean to be holy? Incorporate St. Augustine's, Athanasius' expression into your answer and be prepared to explain the relationship to holiness in your answer. Also, this includes the terms justification, sanctifying grace, as well as how they're received. As I said in class, strictly speaking, only God is holy. To be holy is to be God. But that doesn't mean that we cannot become holy. As St. Athanasius said, God became man so that man might become God. We don't actually really become God, but what Athanasius means is that Jesus partook of our human nature so that we might partake of his divine nature, share in it. We become like God. We become united to God, conformed to his being. The word holy in Hebrew means set apart. So what this means is that we are special in God's sight because of our intimate relationship with him. We are set apart for a unique relationship with God. So how do we become holy? First of all, we must remember that we cannot become holy of our own power. Only God can make us holy. God is the fountain of holiness, as we say in the liturgy. If holiness can be described as unity with God, as friendship with God, then let's consider just what it is that blocks us from God. It's sin. And only God can take away sin. Therefore, in order for us to be free from sin, we must turn to God in humility with faith and repentance. Let's start with repentance. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 16? The Pharisee was boastful about his deeds, while the tax collector humbled himself and asked God for forgiveness. And Jesus asked, Who among the two of them is justified? In other words, righteous in God's sight. And the answer was the tax collector. The irony is, the first step to becoming holy is admitting that you're not. 
you must repent for your sins. John 3.16 famously reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. To be justified, to be declared righteous in God's sight, you must have faith in God. You must have faith in Jesus. Faith that is death on the cross and glorious resurrection redeemed us from our sin. Faith that Jesus' loving sacrifice saves us. So must, so we must also have faith in Jesus. We must have faith in Jesus and repent for our sins. Which is exactly what baptism is for. Baptism is the sacrament of faith and repentance. It is through baptism that we receive God's so-called sanctifying grace, namely the gift that makes us holy and united to God. This sanctifying grace can be lost through mortal sin, but if that happens, we can have this grace restored to us by another sacrament of repentance, the sacrament of penance. So our good deeds in themselves don't save us. No matter how many good deeds you commit, you are still a sinner, and only God can remove that rift of sin that separates us from Him. Having said that, let's not forget the words of the Apostle James, who, in his second chapter, says that, quote, faith without works is dead, end quote. Only a living faith signals the genuine faith of the believer. You can't have faith without being faithful. Our good deeds express our faith, and through them, we can deepen our relationship with God and grow in holiness with Him. Question 3. What does the word vocation mean? Include its etymological derivation. How is it different from a career? The word vocation comes from the Latin verb vocare, and it means to call. It's different from a career in the sense that careers are typically life paths geared toward generating income, making a living, while a vocation is the call from God in response to which one in response to which one's life is geared towards serving him. The former has a material aim, while the latter a spiritual one. The former is temporary, but the latter, a vocation, is for life. If you are a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, you might change careers, or you will eventually retire. But if you are a priest, husband, monk, nun, etc., you are in that state of life 24-7 for the rest of your life. Number four, understand the notion of discernment as it relates to a vocation. That one, you can refer to your notes. I gave pretty good notes on that one. Number five, what are the four, or shall I say three, different kinds of vocation to which God might call a person? Some say that the single life isn't a vocation, some say it is. More about this when I discuss number nine below. But for sure, there are three vocations formally recognized by the church, marriage, holy orders, and the consecrated life. With regard to holy orders, it has three degrees. The diaconate, referring to the office of deacons, coming from the Greek diakonos, meaning helper. The presbyterate, 
referring to the office of priests, coming from the Greek presbyteros, meaning elder, and the highest degree, being the episcopate, the office of bishops, coming from the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer. Number six, seven, you already should have that. Uh, for number six, I will take a look at the handout that I gave you called To the Core. You can find it on my world-famous links page. Uh, the Evangelical Council is Poverty, Chastity, Obedience is the answer for that. Number eight, what are the traditional four steps in becoming a member of a religious order? Um, sometimes there's a little bit of variance between the different religious uh, communities, societies, and orders, but in general, it's the first step is called the postulancy, the second one is the novitiate, the third one is temporary vows, and the fourth is final vows. Uh, there are various synonyms for these. I would encourage you to go online and to do a little bit of reading on what each one of these stages involves. Number nine, discuss the call to the committed single life. Why would someone choose to become single? And what might this have to do with Matthew 19, 12? The committed single life refers to the people who are single by choice, not out of circumstance. It's not that they are yearning to be married but haven't found the right person and hence are single, but rather they feel like they are called by God to be single in service to God and to His people. The single life kind of is and kind of isn't a vocation. Technically, it is not a vocation. And even the catechism does not list it as such. But this is because being single is not necessarily a permanent thing, as it is with the other vocations. A person could believe God is calling them to be single for the rest of their lives, but let's face it, that can change. Moreover, committing yourself to the single life does not involve any public vows. On the other hand, it must be recognized that there are people out there who really do commit themselves to remaining single and really do stay that way for life. And they do a lot of great service to the church. So, say you want to fully devote your life to helping the poor in Africa, and you decide that God is calling you to be single so you can fulfill your mission. Or you want to care for a loved one, such as a sick relative, or serve in some other way that could be much more effective by being single. Then, seen in that way, I suppose a single life could be a vocation. Number 10. What is the difference between a diocesan priest and a religious priest? The simplest way of making this distinction is that diocesan priests do not belong to, to a religious order. That is, they are not in the consecrated life. Religious priests do belong to a religious order. So Father Max or Father Sarfraz are religious priests because they are Augustinians. Father Damien of Molokai was not a diocesan priest because he belonged to the congregation of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. 
Your parish priest, on the other hand, with rare exceptions, does not belong to a religious order. The way that religious and diocesan priests are organized is also different. Diocesan priests serve their bishop within the confines of their diocese. Religious priests, on the other hand, don't answer to their bishop, but instead they answer to their provincial. So the bishop of San Diego does not tell Father Max what to do. Rather, Father Gary Sanders does, because he is the provincial of the Augustinians of the West. Bishops have authority over priests who are within the, the geographical area of their diocese. Provincials, rather, have authority over all the religious within their province, which is drawn along different lines than a diocese. So, for instance, the Diocese of San Diego goes from San Ysidro all the way to the border of Orange County, while the province of the Augustinians of the West encompasses the entire state of California. So the two territories, diocese and province, overlap each other. Number 11. What are the scriptural roots of the diaconate? Provide the chapter and verse in addition to the story in question. Everybody open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and read verses 42 to 45. Pause this podcast now and read it. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 45. No, seriously, pause the video. Thank you. Okay, if you paused, you did well. Okay, so you will notice that the early Christians functioned in a sort of a benevolent communism. I say that with mirth, pooling all their resources together and then distributing them to everyone according to their need. This is not, by the way, an endorsement of governmental communism, which is forced upon people. Rather, the early Christians did it voluntarily, and that is the difference. Anyway, when you get to chapter 6 of Acts, turn to it now, Chapter 6, flip those Bibles, the first few verses, say about 1 to 6 or so, I'm still waiting, turn to the passage, thank you. Anyway, so in Acts chapter 6, you see that their distribution system was breaking down because the widows were not getting their fair share. Therefore, the apostles appointed seven men to be helpers, or in Greek, diakonoi, to make sure all of the needy in the church were being taken care of. And thus the first deacons were born. I'd like to share a personal story about this system of pooling together resources for the good of those who are in need. Uh, many years ago, I had a student who had $30 stolen from him at Saints. And he felt pretty bummed out about it. So um, without telling him or anybody why, I told all of my students, I had 120 students, I told every student to bring a quarter into class. And if you multiply a quarter times 120, you, you get, you guessed it, you math geniuses, exactly 
$30. So I had this big, massive bag of quarters. And so what I did was I handed the quarters to the kid. I just surprised him one morning in front of the whole class and said, remember the $30 that got stolen? Well, your classmates pulled it together. And I gave him $30. So... Uh, and then I asked the students, I said, well, now you know why I collected the 25 cents. If anybody wants their 25 cents back, then go ahead. And nobody wanted their money back because it's only a quarter. But it's pretty amazing how when you pull everybody, when everybody pulls together a small amount, it can make a big difference to one or a few people in need. Okay, number 12. How does the service... What does the service of deacons consist of? How do their ministries differ in East and West? Okay. In light of the scriptural roots of deacons that we find in the book of Acts, we see that deacons are the helpers in the church. They serve. Question number 12 makes reference to East and West. Let me explain. In the Catholic Church, in addition to Roman Catholics, who are known as Western Catholics, there are also Eastern Catholics who share the same faith, but who might have different customs or a different spiritual approach. Do you remember recently when saints held a Chaldean Mass? Well, Chaldeans are Eastern Catholics. I, Mr. Baczynski, am a member of the Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church, I am also a Byzantine Catholic. There are, in fact, 22 different Eastern Catholic churches. This is what is meant by the term East in the question above. I mentioned earlier that Eastern Catholics might have different customs, as we do. Speaking for myself, as a Byzantine Catholic, here are some differences. Our priests can be married. For example, my parish priest has two daughters. We give confirmation to infants, and the Eucharist we use is, un, is sorry, leavened bread instead of unleavened bread, to mention just a few. So deacons in the Eastern churches have a different function than in the West. In the East, deacons tend to be helpers during the liturgical services, chanting the gospel reading, reading many of the prayers during Mass, and just helping the priests celebrate the Mass smoothly. In the West, however, in addition to assisting in liturgical services, deacons can also administer the sacraments of baptism, and they also assist in marriage. Deacons in the West also tend to do like the deacons did in the Book of Acts. They help with the ministries that serve the community, especially the poor and the needy. Does your parish have a prison ministry? Well, guess who's likely to be in charge of it? A deacon. Do you have a homeless outreach? Guess who probably leads it? A deacon. Religious education? Yep, you guessed it. Deacon. Some of you may have already witnessed this if you have been active in your parish. Deacons play a prominent role as helpers of these ministries. So they tend to run these, these sort of programs. Without the help of deacons, priests would go bonkers. It's a good thing 
that these helpers exist in the church. Finally, I'd like to tell you a story. When I was 17 years old, Danny, a fellow seminarian, and I met a man who dressed in clerical attire. Danny asked him what function he performed in the church. The man said, I'm a deacon. Danny replied, oh, so you're only a deacon. The deacon looked at him intensely and replied, I'm not only a deacon, I'm a deacon. So the lesson here is never look at a deacon as less than. They perform remarkable work within the church. Number 13. Know the seven sacraments and which sacraments may each degree of holy orders administer. I think you already know what the seven sacraments of the church are. The question is, do you know which ones, which degree of holy orders can administer? In other words, which sacraments does a bishop, priest, and deacon perform? Let's start with a distinction. Sacraments have ordinary and extraordinary ministers. An ordinary minister is the minister who under normal circumstances would ordinarily administer the sacrament. An extraordinary minister is one who is authorized to administer a sacrament in extraordinary circumstances. For example, you or I are not ordinarily authorized to baptize people, but in case of an emergency, we can. And thus, we would be extraordinary ministers in such instances. Let's start with the Western Church. In the West, bishops are the only ones who can administer holy orders, that is, ordaining people to the priesthood, the diaconate, or even ordaining priests to becoming bishops. Besides that, they can administer every other sacrament ordinarily, except for marriage, which I will explain later. Priests are the ordinary ministers of all the sacraments, except marriage and holy orders. Priests are the extraordinary ministers of confirmation, given that bishops are their ordinary ministers. But since bishops can't get around to all the faithful to confirm them, priests perform this extraordinarily on their behalf. In the Western Church, deacons may only ordinarily perform the sacrament of baptism. They do not administer any of the sacraments extraordinarily. So, for instance, if the priest were sick and couldn't perform the sacrifice of the Mass, a deacon could not step in and say, don't worry, I've got this. If he attempted it, the sacrificial aspect of the Mass would be invalid, and the bread and the wine would simply remain bread and wine instead of becoming the body and blood of Christ. And now let's get to that special case of marriage. In, in Western theology, the minister of the sacrament of marriage is neither the priest or deacon or even bishop. Rather, the bride and groom administer the sacrament to each other. They are the ministers. However, having said that, bishops, priests, and deacons need to be present, one of them anyway, to witness the marriage in order for the marriage to be valid. So they witness marriages rather than administer them. And now let's turn to the Eastern churches. In the Eastern churches, the roles of priests and deacons differ quite a bit, except for bishops, 
who just like in the West are the only ones who can administer holy orders. But in the East, priests ordinarily perform all of the other sacraments, including confirmation and marriage. Why marriage? Because in the East, the sacramental theology of marriage is this. It is the priest who unites them together in the name of God, not the bride and groom, as it is in the Western Church. So the priest is not merely a witness. Rather, it is through his ministry that the bride and groom are joined as one. Number 14. What is the matter in holy orders? Do you know how in church and sacraments class you were taught that every sacrament must have a visible, tangible sign? For example, for baptism, it's water. For confirmation, it's holy chrism, the oil, and the laying on of hands. The visible, tangible sign of a sacrament is known as the matter of a sacrament. So what is the matter of the sacrament of holy orders? The answer is laying on of hands by a bishop. The laying on of hands. So in order for a layman to be ordained a deacon, or for a deacon to become ordained a priest, or for a priest to be ordained a bishop, a bishop has to lay his hands upon the head of the candidate. Number 15, 16, and 17. Those, uh, let me see, 15 and 16 can be found in your U-book. I think that book explains it pretty well. Number 15 being why priests uh, can't be married. And number 16, why the priesthood is only reserved to men. I'd like to make a comment about number 15 on why priests in the Roman church, in the Western church, cannot be married. And I realize that I told you that in the Eastern church, priests can be married, and my pastor is married, and my previous pastor was married as well. But I have a lot of respect for the Western custom of a celibate priesthood. Because a celibate priest can respond to the needs of the parish which a much, which a, with a much greater focus. For example, with my current pastor, if I were to call him on the phone and say, my mom is in the hospital, can you come over and anoint her? My, my pastor would do that, and he would get there maybe a couple of hours later. A few pastors ago, I had a celibate priest who was unmarried, and I would place a phone call, you know, my mom or my dad is in the hospital, and guess what? He would be there in 20 minutes. See, when you're not, um, when you don't have the, resp the responsibilities of a family, you can devote yourself to the ministry with a much greater focus, with a kind of a laser beam focus. And um, nothing against families and nothing against married priesthood, but I do have to say, they do take away from your time. Um, now, there is one question that I did not answer, which I'm going to do as an epilogue, as a sort of an episode two, and that is in discussing the single vocation, I did not answer the question, what does this have to do with Matthew 19.12? So that's going to come as an epilogue in a future podcast. So that's it for now. 
and some of this may have been a little bit confusing, I suggest that you corroborate um, what I've told you by going on the web. I recommend taking notes and you know, just kind of play it over and over again. I'm going to take the podcast down right before the test. So take good notes and good luck. And be safe and be healthy. Praying for you. Mr. Baczynski signing off.